2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. I'm sorry, I can't operate on that vehicle. But doctor, you took an oath. That RV, it's... My son's RV. Oh, doctor, isn't there anything you can do? I'm not a miracle worker, Sheila. I'm an RV surgeon trained to save the lives of large injured recreational vehicles, which is definitely a real profession. When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates covered subject to policy terms.
3: With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band.
2: Listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. And with two notes, James Calvin Wilson announced his presence to the music world at large. But by the time Wicked Game launched Chris Isaac, Roland Sally, Kenny Dale Johnson, and James Calvin Wilsey onto MTV and in front of millions, Jimmy was already living a very rock and roll lifestyle, one that would lead him to crash and burn half an album later. Journalist and author Michael Goldberg joins the podcast to discuss James Wilson and the new book he's written about his life, death, and the music he left behind. It may be the most heartbreaking episode I've ever recorded. Michael discusses Jimmy's early days in school and how he started playing with the Avengers in San Francisco, meeting Chris Isaac and deciding he didn't really want to play with him initially. We also talk about his time as a consultant for Apple and in IT for a Hollywood marketing company. But even through his addiction to heroin, Jimmy was always working on music. In addition to the solo album he released, El Dorado, there was so much more, including music with Billy Idol and Lana Del Rey. It's a heartbreaking and fascinating story. To so pick up Michael's book Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey from Hozak Books. A percentage of the sales will go to help Jimmy's son Whalen. There's a link in the notes, and you can follow Michael on social media to see what he's up to. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Buy stuff at performanceanx.threadless.com. Or buy us a cup of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. I get some tissues and check out the story of James Calvin Wilsey with Michael Goldberg on Performance Anxiety, part of Pantheon Podcasts.
0: So I'm Michael Goldberg. I'm a journalist, a novelist, and a photographer. I've been interviewing musicians and photographing musicians since I was 17. I wrote for... uh, Esquire, The New Musical Express, Cream, Downbeat, New York Rocker, Trouser Press, Musician. I mean, a lot of different places. And I was a senior writer at Rolling Stone for a decade. I founded the first rock internet magazine, Addicted to Noise. And um, let's see, what else can I tell you? This book is called Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey. And at the end of the year, I have a collection of my writing coming out, Addicted to Noise, the music writings of Michael Goldberg. And it's been really great to be on Performance Anxiety. Or I'm just so happy. I should try that again. Um, <laughs> I'm really happy that I've been invited to be on Performance Anxiety. And I think we're going to have uh, have a good show. I'm really looking forward to, to telling your listeners all about, you know, Jimmy Wilsey and why he was uh, important and why I wrote a book about him.
2: This is really, this. it's it's fascinating to me, because when I first started thinking about doing this podcast, the subject of your book is James Calvin Wilsey, and he was one of the people that I wanted to get on the podcast, and I'm not, I'm trying to remember if he had, if I had found out he had just passed, or he passed very soon after I started, and uh, I figured there, there went my chance, so... Having having somebody who knew him and has written a book about him is the next best thing. So thank you so much for joining me.
0: Oh sure, no thanks for having me. This is great.
2: So before we get into the subject of the book, let's find out a little bit about you. How did you become a writer? Did you play music growing up, or was music just uh, something that was a hobby?
0: Well, actually, I mean, I did, I did take piano lessons and guitar lessons um the thing was you know after the beatles hit uh everybody wanted to learn to play guitar including me and the thing is everyone wanted to learn to play electric guitar right but my parents would only get me an acoustic guitar and so i'm taking these acoustic guitar lessons i'm learning you know folk songs and as a a young teenager you know like Twelve years old, folk song. I mean, now of course, you know, folk music is is. I I think is you know. There's a lot of folk music that I really appreciate and like. Yeah. But as a twelve year old, that was not where I was at. I wanted to play the Beatles and the Kinks and the Rolling Stones and all of that. Oh yeah. On on an electric guitar, and so, so that was problematic. (laughs) But anyway, but in terms of in terms of um in terms of writing. I was always a a good writer in school, and and I also loved to read. And so when uh, Rolling Stone started, I like bought probably the second issue, and you know pretty quick it was like this is what I want to do, you know. And so I, you know I was reading Rolling Stone, and but I mean when I was seventeen, a friend and I, this was during the summer, and we started we thought it was going to be a bay area rock magazine that was going to go on and on forever yeah. but we did we did one issue of it we called it hard road which was based on an album by john mayall and the bluesbreakers but it was also the idea that the musician's life it's a hard road Yeah. you know that they were on and um, you know and so we did one issue and the thing was we were friends with this guy uh, tom donahue junior and tom donahue senior was the guy who created underground FM rock music in the Bay Area at KMPX oh, wow. uh, back in like, you know, 67. And wow. so, and, that, and and so, you know, this was our friend's dad. So one, so we're going to do this magazine. And we're walking up, we parked the car, I parked my car, we got out, we, we, you know, we're 17, we walk up, up the road. And at the top, of the driveway leading down to Tom Donahue's house is Jerry Garcia. Whoa. And <laughs> and I go up to Jerry Garcia and I say, "Hey, we're starting this magazine. We'd like to interview you." You know, something I mean I don't know my exact words, but right. basically that was the gist of it. And amazingly, <laughs> he says, "Sure." Wow. And so and we say, "Well, so, you know, can we do it?" you know, we don't have our tape recorder, you know, we want to, and he gives us his address and says, yeah, come to my, come to my place next, you know, Tuesday night at seven or something, you know, I, I, you know, and (laughs) yeah. And so we go there and we knock on the door and mountain girl answers. Oh my God. And, and she says, uh, hello. What, you know, what, what, what is that? What, you know, Yeah. and we say, well, Jerry Garcia told us to come here at this time to interview him. And, and literally, I'm carrying a reel-to-reel tape recorder that's like, Whoa. you know, what, whatever, like 24 inches wide and 24 inches high. And, you know, and then we've got a, a microphone we're carrying, you know, and our notebooks. And so we're standing there, with, and I have a ca- my camera and all this stuff. And she says – well, let me check to him, but I know he's about to leave to go play the Keystone Berkeley,
1: oh, And we're man. like,
0: oh, my God. And so anyway, he was about to leave, but because he'd completely forgotten about this. I mean, you know, it's not like right. this was on the top of his mind yeah. for us. For us, this was like amazing. You know, oh, yeah. Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead is actually going to do an interview with us. You know, we've got our cover. This is amazing. I know. And, the feeling. Uh, so anyway. He sat down with us in his living room. We got the thing rolling. I took some pictures, and uh, and that was that was our our cover story oh my of, of our of our one and only issue because you know we're seventeen, <laughs> and by the time it came out, and we took it around to newsstands everywhere, and tried to get places to carry it, and I mean you can't believe how much work it was. And then the school, the school year was going to start and there's no way we could do another issue. Right. So, (laughs) but anyway, so, so that was kind of one of the key things uh, early on that I did that prepared me uh, to be a, be a real journalist.
2: That's amazing. Uh, What a first issue. First and only issue though. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: You still have copies of that?
0: (laughs) um, Oh yeah. Oh good. I I could, I have one somewhere here, but uh, I don't. (laughs) I've had one around. I don't know. I don't have it to show you right now, yeah. but, but I have copies.
2: That is awesome. Uh,
0: but, you know, I uh, you know, I was the arts editor of the high school paper, and then I wrote rock journalism for um, the City on a Hill Press when I went to UC Santa Cruz, and then there was an alternative weekly in, in the town of Santa Cruz, and so I, I became their rock critic and wrote okay. a column for them.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work not dealing well with the stress whatever you need it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy and now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help better help is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com performanceanxiety Performance Anxiety. That's BetterHelp.com slash Performance Anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast.
0: You know, after college, I was in San Francisco, and um, I got a job working as a copyboy at the San Francisco Chronicle, and that was really useful because uh, they had a they have and they still have it. It's called the, the the San Francisco Chronicle Datebook section. It's a Sunday entertainment section. Okay, and and so I started writing articles for this for the date book section oh you know interviews with with musicians and the thing was they paid 35 dollars, so they were paying they and and that was still nothing even back you know back (laughs) back then it was nothing okay um and and but so the thing was they were hungry for stories which was great for me because i had i was getting a salary from the chronicle so so I didn't care if they were paying yes. me $35 for these freelance articles, you know. <laughs> but the thing was, the paper had a reach of, of like about, they, they said, 2 million people. Wow. So, so you could get basically any artist you wanted, you could talk to. And so, so it was great, you know. I mean, I you know Smokey Robinson, uh, you know. Wow. I'm trying to remember who. It, I mean, it just so many people. Muddy Waters. Uh,
1: oh
2: man,
0: you know, just just. I mean, it was just like all kinds of kinds of people. Um, but, you know, the Go Go's when they had their hit, and oh, the cool. B52, the B52s, and you know, it, yeah, it just and so anyway, so then because I had all these articles in the, in the Chronicle, then I was able to use that and get the attention of Rolling Stone. And anyway, eventually um, I got hired as a senior writer at Rolling Stone. And then I did that for 10 years, you know, and that was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I did like cover story on James Brown. I did a story on Lindsay Buckingham, a cover story on Stevie wonder. I did a, did a, Big story on Brian Wilson when he was uh under the spell of that uh, strange therapist, yes. uh, Landy. Yeah. Uh, you Know, big story when Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys died about the, you know, sort of what happened. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I was kind of doing more investigative kinds of pieces. Oh, cool. uh, you know, so I would talk to a lot of people. I mean, you know, I did a cover story on Boy George when Boy, I don't know if you remember, Boy George became, you know, was using heroin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he really went on a big slide. And so I went to England and, you know, to get the sort of the inside story on what had happened to boy George and how had this all happened? And, uh, and I'm trying to remember, I mean, um, did did a big story um, sort of what I call post-punk, but it was really continuation of punk. It's the first like serious story that dealt with black flag and the replacements um, and, and flipper and uh, Husker do. And the Minutemen—that was in Rolling Stone. Wow! So that was kind of a big deal uh, for the, you know, to get for for that scene to get that kind of mainstream attention. For sure. Uh, You know, and I wrote about Van Morrison. I interviewed him and uh, X, and you know, I mean, just just I mean, lots of people. I mean, for ten years, I was, I mean, I did four I did four Michael Jackson cover stories. Oh, wow! Uh, uh, I, I never got to interview him. I did get to meet him once. But uh, oh, man, but I went up to Neverland. I stayed up at at Neverland for a night. Oh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of like crazy, crazy stuff. And and so anyway, then by 1993, the Internet started. Yeah. And I got this idea for an online music magazine. And there was no such thing. I mean, this was the beginning of the Internet. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I was initially going to do this on AOL. And I actually got there was a guy at at Warner Brothers who um, was he thought this was a great idea. So we were having meetings with people at Warner Brothers. The idea that was they were going to fund this thing. Okay. well, well, a year goes by and they're still not funding it. And now it's now it's um, 1994, and there still wasn't any any web music magazine. Okay. Okay, 1994, there's no web music magazine. Hardly anybody has the internet at that point. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, and so I said, okay, this isn't going to be on AOL. We're going to do this on the internet. And I met these guys who were in Santa Cruz who were doing um, doing some music stuff on the internet. And I said, hey – do you guys want to do the back end of this and I'll, I'll I'm going to be the editor. I'm going to get all the writers. We're going to get, you know, all these great people to write for it. You need to handle the tech stuff. So they were they were game for that. And so on uh, December I think it was December 1st, 1995, we launched the first issue of Addicted to Noise. Oh. Wow. And yeah, and uh, and this was the second web magazine. The f- the first one beat us by literally about a month, oh. and it was, it, it was Hot Wired. You know, oh, it, was the, okay. the, it was the online version of Wired Magazine. Yeah, yeah. So, so I didn't feel so bad about that, yeah. because, I mean, <laughs> Wired Magazine was great. Yeah. And I had written for Wired, so um, it was cool. But, um, yeah, so we launched this thing, and the second issue of it, I had REM as the cover story, and, and I went to Australia. Where they were beginning the tour for their album Monster, mm-hmm. and they the first dates were in Perth. And Perth is this really out of the way place in Australia. I mean, really, not nobody goes to Perth <laughs> as far as that's what I'm told anyway. Right. <laughs> well, I wanted to go to Perth to be able to be at the very beginning of the tour. But they didn't want me to go there because they wanted to, like, start their tour with no press, you know, uh-huh. watching. So but they said it was fine for me to go to, um, to Sydney, which was basically their second the second second group of dates. It was like three nights in, in Sydney. Okay. And so um, so that's what I did. And uh-huh. so um, and so I interviewed um, Michael Stipe in the afternoon and then uh, went to a couple of the shows, which were great, and interviewed their producer, Scott Litt. And so put this big REM package together. And the thing was, you know, this is like the beginning of online journalism. And so as a journalist, I'm looking at this like, this is amazing. You don't have to worry about space. Right. You can just go on and on. You can run, you know, a 10,000-word interview, and it's cool, (laughs) you know, no problem. So, you know, that was how we started. But the funny thing was that – or I don't know if it's funny, but – it wasn't the long features. It wasn't the columns. Even though I, I got Dave Marsh and and I, we were reprinting Greil Marcus's column and uh, Billy Altman was writing a TV column and, okay. and 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 Richard Meltzer and I mean I had all these good rock critics doing the columns and then I had um, you know a lot of people doing reviews mm-hmm. but. The thing that immediately started catching on was our daily music news, which we called music news of the world as sort of a, a joke on those uh, the tabloids. Yeah. You know, and uh, <laughs> so that just exploded. And so basically we put, ended up putting a lot of focus on the daily music news because people were really hungry all over the world. People were hungry have new information every single day about their favorite artists. Yeah. And so we were covering, you know, we st- we were covering all the uh, a big broad range of artists from Patty Smith to Fish to R.E.M. to, you know, the Minutemen, to Iggy to wow. just, you know, just a a wide range, but it wasn't lame pop music. It was cool cool rock music and you know, and some blues and soul and, you know, but, but primarily at that point it was, it was rock music and, uh, and, you know, underground rock music and mainstream rock music. Okay. Uh, but, and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of, that was the whole, the whole thing. Oh, that's, that is <laughs> wild. man. And then eventually, uh, I, the thing is it was really hard to make money and yeah. I got, I got a lot, of, I got, You know, record companies to advertise, and the thing was, I was having to do everything. I I was having to edit the magazine. I was having to get the ads, and I had I had other people helping me, but I couldn't find. You know, I I tried different people trying to get them to be able to sell ads, and they couldn't do it. And so, so I was I was running out of money.
2: Basically.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so and and I was going into debt. I was like using, you know, this thing where you could get a lot of credit cards. Well, I had a lot of credit cards (laughs) and and it was getting kind of it was getting scary. Oh, no. Uh, And so luckily there was another music website by that point. It was called SonicNet. okay. And SonicNet was based in New York. And this guy named Nicholas Butterworth was running it. And so I read in the paper that this company had bought SonicNet. And okay. so so that I, I was in the Wall Street Journal. And so this friend of mine – not friend of mine, but at that point, this guy who was actually David Hyman, who was actually able to sell ad- ads for us, he was going to New York. So I said, David, meet with Nicholas. Find out maybe, maybe they – Want to buy us too, and we can combine. Yeah, and so that's actually what happened. Oh, and wow. So then we then we combined SonicNet and Addicted to Noise, and we were under the umbrella of this this other company that had some money. So basically, we were then for the next like six years, I guess. I mean, let's see. It was how long did it go till? Basically, till two thousand. Okay. Um, I had started Addicted to Noise at the end of 94. So um, there were years when we just had all this money. <laughs> so, so basically, at a certain point, my editorial staff was 75 people. That's, wow. more, pe- that's more people than Rolling Stone or, or any other music magazine ever had. I wow. mean – it was, it was huge. We had people doing, you know, doing, cause we were doing audio clips with the stories, sometimes video clips. It was, it was just a wild, a wild thing. uh um, crazy. Yeah. So I had a, had a really wild ride, uh, during those, those early internet years. <laughs>
2: so yeah. you've written a book about a, a guitarist who's just a mystery to so many people, myself included. And I've, I've loved his work, and I've always wondered what happened to him. James Calvin Wilsey, Chris Isaac's original guitarist. How did you meet him in the first place?
0: Well, the thing was, I was doing a story for the San Francisco Examiner. This is in 1982. This is before Rolling Stone. Okay. And so then the story was going to be on rising bands, new and rising bands in the bay well i'm really in san francisco okay and so i'm asking you know everyone i know what are the best who do you think is best who are the new ones that are that are really good Yeah. and one of the bands was called silvertone okay and so so i went to um to see them at this club called the berkeley square in berkeley and they were absolutely fantastic i mean they were sort of like Ricky Nelson meets the Everly Brothers meets uh, you know I don't know you know Elvis or something I yeah. mean it was or with with the Shadows you know backing them or something right I mean, you know and um, the thing was for some of the songs Jimmy and Isaac were were singing together at times really um, yeah I mean he was like doing some harmony vocal stuff stepping up to the mic to do that oh, wow. and uh, and they were I just thought they were great and the thing was. Their man, co-manager and producer was Eric Jacobson, mm-hmm. and and Eric Jacobson, for people who don't know, in the mid '60s, he produced six top ten hits for the Eleven Spoonful. Yeah, do you believe in magic and "Summer in the City" and I mean, you know, just fantastic songs. Yeah. and you know, I was I was like a young kid, you know, ki- uh, you know at the younger end of teenage when those songs came out and I just flipped over those songs and I had all the loving, I bought all the loving spoonfuls albums. And so the fact that Eric Jacobson was working with this new band was very exciting to me. And so I, I met Eric and there, and we, we talked and then he took me backstage and introduced me to, to the band, including Jimmy. And so that was the first time the first time that I met him. And then over the next uh, number of years, as they were they were developing and, you know, playing occasional gigs, eventually when their first album came out in 1985, I did a story about it was basically about Chris Isaac for Rolling Stone. it was a short piece, but I went to a bunch of gigs uh, at that time. And they were, they were even, I mean, they were like way better even than the first time I saw them because, you know, they had, they had a new drummer, you know, they had Kenny, Kenny on the drums at yeah. that point, they had Raleigh, you know, on the bass and uh, you know, in addition to, to Chris and Jimmy, and they were, they were really, really great. And I saw them at this small club called the night break that was on hate Street, and they did a residency there oh, they played cool. played a bunch of nights, and you know I went to a number of those and it was it was fantastic and so I would then you know I would go to gigs and I was kind of getting to know the guys you know just a little bit and then i would when a new album would come out, like when the second album came out. Interviewed Chris again. Uh, at that point, I did a did a big story for the San Francisco Examiner. Had a magazine section, so I did a big story on on Chris Isaac for that. And uh, but I hung with the hung with the band and went to Stockton and interviewed his mother and okay. you know went to his the house where he, where he grew up and met his dad and you know interviewed Eric Jacobson at length and the other co-manager Mark Plummer and and then um, at a certain point 1987. I interviewed Jimmy for uh, probably an hour and a half. And that was the first time where we really sort of sat down together, you know, and I went to his apartment and you know, we hung out a bit. He played me some records. We, you know, and we did did this interview. And then when Wicked Game happened, I did a, a big story. It was it was it was. It was sort of a cover story in the sense that, I mean, it was a cover story, but the cover was shared by four artists. Okay. So Chris Isaac was one of the four on the cover. OK. So that was a, a pretty substantial, that was a substantial piece. The longest piece I had written on, on them, other than the one for the, the Chronicle. And, um, and so I interviewed Jimmy for that as well. And then I, um, then I did a profile of Jimmy for Guitar Player magazine. Oh, cool. You know, it was just on Jimmy. And uh, I think he really dug that. That's awesome. You know, yeah. And yeah, it, it, it was cool. It was a cool piece, and the, and the phot- photography for it was great. It, it was really nice. And um...
2: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot. And love them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com.
0: And anyway, we started hanging out. And um, so we, and we became friends. And I would go over to his place and he had all these, um, he taped all these Rolling Stones, um, like movies. And he had, he had all these, you know, back then. It wasn't like now, you know, yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, VHS tape and, you know, but he he had yeah. all the all this. And so we would sometimes just hang out and watch watch the stones or talk yeah. about stuff. Or he would he would show me what he was doing because he was he was using this pioneering multi-track recording program that you could you could do four tracks on your computer. And this was the this was the beginning. OK, <laughs> yeah. there was no Pro Tools didn't exist yet. These were the guys who created the audio recording part of Pro Tools. Oh, and, wow!
2: Okay,
0: okay, but this was the beginning, and it was called Deck D E C K, and it was four tracks, and so Jimmy was using that, and he actually recorded. I mean, one song he recorded on that was on a on a film soundtrack. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah. then he used that to record a lot of times he would he would work out guitar parts that he would then later do in the real studio okay but that's that's where he he could work it out and he could you know do multi tracks and then merge things together and, and all of that and also during that time and this is this sort of is the side of jimmy that's that, i mean he's a he he was a really at that point in his life anyway he was a really gracious person who for his would do a lot for his friends. And uh, here he was. This record had been in the t- top 10 Wicked Game.
3: The
0: world was on fire He's given my son guitar lessons every week. Wow. I mean, we'd go over there and he would like show him how to play, you know, a song that he wanted to play. That's and, amazing. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the, he was just like that. I mean, at at that point in his life, I mean, yeah. later things got different. But so anyway, so that's that's kind of how I how I got to know him. Okay. You know, I mean,
2: he's known best for Wicked game. I mean, those those two notes. Anybody hears those notes, they know that song. And Absolutely. It, it's. I mean, that song is iconic. It, it is. It kind of defines Chris Isaac. I mean, but I know he, he was in a punk band before Silverton, the Avengers. But he played bass in that band, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah. No, he he played bass in the Avengers. And the, the thing is, okay. I mean, this is also kind of this is crazy. Um, so you know, Jimmy had played. He played guitar in high school. And that's when he gotten an electric guitar. And uh, first he played acoustic, then he got electric, he was, you know, and uh, and he was playing in bands with. But they weren't really bands. They were more just like him and his friends would get together, you know, like there was a drummer and there was a, another guitar player. And, you know, the, they would get together in his basement and they would play. Okay. And, and there were other people he played with. And but he was never in bands that performed anywhere in high school. Okay, but but he played a lot. I mean, and he was learning how to play, you know, songs he liked. I mean, he learned tons of Neil Young songs when, the, you know, when Harvest came out because they they loved that album. And in uh, the Stones, he was a big Stones fan, so he's learning some Stones stuff and all that. But anyway, when he when he got to be eighteen, he had decided he was going to go to San Francisco and. He was he go to art school in San Francisco, okay, because he was also an artist i mean and he was he was seriously doing art at that point, and he was actually doing art he was he was doing music too, but he thought he was going to be an artist that's wow. what he thought he was going to do at that particular time when he was back in this suburb of you know st louis where he where he lived right and um and so he came out here, and that was he got out here in august. Of 1996, I'm sorry, 1976, right. and okay. and in December of 1976, the Mabué Gardens, the first punk club in San Francisco, started play. Started and they had this band called the Nuns, that were a, a punk band in San Francisco who okay. played. And then at the beginning of 77, they had this band called Crime, and then. At a certain point, the Ramones came out here and played there. And I mean, you know, the Dictators, I think, played there. and But there were a lot of bands forming really quickly in San Francisco around then okay. that were, were playing this place. So so Jimmy was here. He was here from the very beginning of the Mabue Gardens. And he started going there practically every night, if not every night. Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, so at a certain point, I mean, he saw the Avengers. And he was there with his girlfriend and he told his girlfriend, I could do that, pointing to the bass player. I could do it, I could be I could play better than that guy. And <laughs> and he didn't play bass at that point. <laughs> I mean, he played guitar, he didn't play <laughs> bass, but but that was sort of his attitude. So he ran into he'd seen Penelope Houston. She was around the city. I mean, people's paths were crossing, and it was a small, small crowd, really, you know few hundred people who were the punk scene in the beginning. Oh, wow. you know, okay. it was a very small group of people. Yeah. And for Sam, the San Francisco punk scene. And anyway, he ran into her at city lights books, which is, that well, was Lawrence Ferland, the late Lawrence Ferland Getty, you know, who was a beat poet. Yeah. That was his bookstore, which is in North beach. Right. That book, that bookstore is like down the block from the Babuay gardens. Okay. He ra- he runs into Penelope Houston there. And, and he says, Hey, could I play guitar in your band? And she says, no, but we could really use a, a new bass player because <laughs> they were because they were like they were unhappy with Jonathan Postal okay. who was playing bass at the time. And, and now the Avengers have only played for like a month at this point. Oh, okay? wow. OK. Okay, and so so basically, she says to him, "Well, talk to the guitar player. Talk to Greg. You know, we could use a bass player. Can you play bass?" And he says, "Oh yeah, I can play bass." <laughs> you, know, you know, and so he talks to Greg at the Mabue. He, he When he, you know, everyone is at these at the Mabue every night, right? You know? right. And um, and so he he Greg says to him, so he says, "Well, have you played bass before?" <laughs> and he says, "No." Says, well, he says. He says, well, do you have a bass? No. He says, well, OK. He, but Greg said, well, there was something about this guy. It was like <laughs> you didn't care if he could play bass because he was such a great personality. I mean, there was something about this guy that you just I could just, He says, uh, you know, I could just see him in our band. I mean, you know, oh, And so wow. um, so he says, OK, well, come. This is where we're rehearsing come here. And Jimmy told said, you know, he'd have a base. He said, uh, you know, he would have a base, but when he showed up, so, (laughs) so he shows up, okay. He shows up and he's got a base and he says to the guy, he says to Greg, he says, you know what? I stopped at this pawn shop on my way here and they had this base. And so I got it for $75. I mean, it was like, so he was so casual.
2: (laughs) On my way here.
0: And, and so they uh, they had an amp that he could use, and uh, they they kind of auditioned him and played songs, and, and basically Greg said he was just perfect. I mean, he could just. And the thing was, he he played guitar. You know, he would played guitar for years now, so I don't think it's actually that hard if you played guitar to play bass. I mean, I'm sure that a dedicated bass player. Someone in a major band is is going to have abilities and skills and things that that Jimmy wouldn't have had back then. Right. But this is but this is a, you know, a raw punk band. This is the yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Exactly. And so and so they brought him in and and that was it. He was the the bass player in the Avengers till the band broke up and he uh, he co-wrote, actually, their what people think of as their best and most well known song. It's a song called We Are the One. Yes. And Jimmy wrote, at the minimum, he wrote the verses and he may not, not the lyrics, the music. Right. It's, it's It's unclear whether he wrote the chorus or if, uh, if Greg the guitar player, wrote the chorus. Greg, Greg sort of remembers writing the chorus. Uh, Jimmy told, um, you know told this other interviewer that you know he'd written the music. Okay. but you know, I mean, he told him that in 2018, six months before he died. so yeah. you know, he could have been elaborating a little bit on right, what yeah. actually happened. But Penelope has a notebook that she kept from back then. And oh, wow. it basically has, you know, in terms of who wrote that particular song, it has her name and it has Jimmy's name. And then added in later is Danny, who was the drummer. So she told me that she thought that meant that Danny may have added like a little bit of some lyrics or something later. <clears throat> but oh, wow. she wrote, she wrote both, almost all the lyrics and uh, and she thought Jimmy had written the music. It doesn't matter whether you know, if Greg, Greg maybe Greg wrote it, be Greg was Greg was and is, an absolutely incredible guitar player. Yeah. I mean, you listen to him playing you know on the Avengers songs back then, and he was just like one of the best. yeah I mean, it was just just amazing. So I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if he wrote the chorus, uh, that's completely believable. It doesn't matter. But anyway, um, yeah, so Jimmy was in that band, and he became kind of a star within the San Francisco punk scene. He was one of the people who was at the heart of it. And the thing was that he was at the Mabue, like I told you, almost every night. Yeah. And even though he's in this band that is now becoming very successful within the punk scene, I mean... Three, four hundred people are showing up a night, packing this club. Wow. When the When the Avengers go, you know, go there, he was like, he was always helping other bands. I mean, um, Steve DePace, Pace, who is has you know became the drummer in in Flipper. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve DePace goes up to him and he's he's not in Flipper, he's not in any band, and he, he he talked to him and he said, well, how do you get in a band? And Jimmy says, look, what you want to do is. You want to go to this record store. It's called Aquarius Records. You want to go to Aquarius Records. You want to write down, you know, what kind of music you like, you know, to play Mm -hmm. and that you're looking for a band and you post that there. And, you know, that's where people are going and looking to see if they need to find a musician. So go there. And that's what happened. I mean, he went there and and, uh, next thing he knows, he gets gets a call. and, uh, And so that's how, you know and so that's the kind of like i say that's how jimmy was just a really nice guy yeah. he didn't have a bunch of airs like like oh hey i'm i'm too good for you back then
2: the avengers break up and silvertone for what what is the time frame and it's such a sonic shift such a change from the punk of the avengers to the more and and i'm I'm going off of what I, you know, the very first Silvertone album, the more rockabilly sound uh, of Silvertone.
0: Well, here's the thing. Jimmy was always into country music, and that was partially because his parents dug country music. And right. so there was country records playing at his house. You know, he could play Johnny Cash songs, and that was something that he liked, always liked. And so the Avengers actually... God, I'm spacing out now on the song that they did. But um, but they uh, but they pl- they played basically a, ro- a rockabilly song. And they did it in a punk way. But oh, I think okay. it's uh, I think uh, I think it was Come On, Everybody. I think that's the one it was. Yeah. They covered Eddie Cochran's Come On, Everybody. Oh, OK. The, the Avengers did. Billy Zoom from X, and and Billy was all into, um, you know, he was all into Eddie Cochran, and he was showing him all these riffs and stuff. And so Jimmy started, started like, he he got into Rockabilly. Okay. While the Avengers was was still going on, he got into Rockabilly. And meanwhile, he was feeling like he was kind of burning out on the whole punk thing. It was kind of getting old for him. And uh, so when the band broke up, It wasn't like he was like, oh, I want to do another punk band. And the other thing was he wanted to play guitar. I mean, even he was playing bass in the Avengers, but he always wanted to play guitar. And he always was playing guitar. I mean, on his own, he was practicing guitar, learning, learning riffs, learning songs and all that. And um, when the Avengers broke up and this was in 1979, he wasn't sure he was going to continue in music.
2: Oh wow! And
0: yeah, and he, yeah, I don't know what he thought he was going to do. I mean, he he was doing construction, and he hated the construction. Yeah, and he hated that. And so, so then he decided, okay, I'm going to do some stuff in music. And so, I think he was like. Maybe doing some giving people some guitar lessons. He was uh, just you know whatever was sort of coming along. He he played bass for um, for Lenny K uh, when Lenny K came to town. Okay, uh, you know he did two gigs and and, and Jimmy played bass and uh, and so then what happened was originally when Chris Isaac formed the first version of Silvertone, which was at the beginning of 1980. What happened was. He was sort of coming up here and this guy, Mark Plummer, who was a journalist who was kind of wanted wanted to manage bands. And uh, he'd been working with some bands in San Francisco and someone played this tape at a party and it was Chris Isaac singing a George Jones song. And it was a really terrible tape and everything. But (laughs) but he heard this voice and he thought, wow. If I I want to work with that guy, wow. he, but he couldn't find him. So all he knew <laughs> was the, the girl who had the tape told him the guy's name was Chris and he was from Stockton. Oh, nice. So so anyway, Beautiful. some time, some time goes by and he runs into this guitar player he, that he casually knows. And he says to the guy, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm kind of I'm working with this guy, Chris. Um, and he says, Where's he from? Stockton. He says it's got to be the same guy. Give me his phone number. Oh, wow. so he he calls he call, according to Mark he calls he calls Chris Isaac up and says, "Hey, I want to manage you. You oh, have wow. a manager. I want to manage you." And Isaac says, "Well, what are you going to do for me?" And and he says to him, "I'm going to make you a star." And then they both start laughing, you know, because that's the, that's the cliche, right? Right, right? And so they just the sense of humor. Clicked. and so uh, so anyway, he did start managing Chris Isaac, wow. and so the first thing they needed to do was get a band together, and so he asked Chris, "Well, who do you like?" You know, and he liked John Silver's drumming, okay, and he and he liked Jimmy Wilsey's bass playing, and so <laughs> so they basically um, first Mark Plummer had Silver's and Isaac over for dinner at his place. And those guys hit it off. Okay. And they Jimmy did not want to play bass. That was just no. I'm right. not. Do, I, I don't want to do it. Sorry, man. So then they got this other bass player, Chuck Cornelis. And so they, they were. It was a trio at first. Okay. And and it was called the Silvertones for th- about two or three gigs. But you know, there's the Swan Silvertones, and so then they changed it to Silvertone. Okay. Well, at a certain point. They got an Echoplex, which is a unit that they used, like Sun Records used and stuff, you know, to get echo on a voice or on a guitar. Yeah. And so they needed somebody to run the Echoplex and do sound. And anyway, John Silvers called up Jimmy and asked him if he wanted to do it. And Jimmy said, sure. And so Jimmy started doing the sound for Silvertone.
2: Oh, wow, and
0: okay. yeah. And so then after and before and after the gig, he would show Chris Isaac guitar riffs because Chris Ars- Isaac was not a very good guitar player, and he could, certainly wasn't a good lead guitar player. Right. And he's trying to play; he's trying to play rhythm and lead, doing these rockabilly songs. Oh, wow. And Jimmy knows how to play all the riffs for those things. So anyway, and they both bonded over that and over country music, and so they started getting together on a regular basis. And then, oh, meanwhile, uh, Isaac got kind of got sick of his rockabilly band. And so <laughs> he he broke up that band. Oh, and so wow. then him and Jimmy were working together. And then the two of them, according to Jimmy and according to other people, the two of them formed the second version of Silvertone. And Jimmy found the bass player, a guy named Jamie Ayres. And the way he found them was was really funny. Jimmy got a cab, and the, you know, he got in the cab and he's driving. Guy's got the radio on and they start talking about music. And at some point, Jimmy says to him, do you play music? And the guy says, yeah. What do you play? I play a stand up bass. And Jimmy goes, oh, we're interested in you. <laughs> um, and the guy says, we? And he says, yeah, it's this guy, Chris Isaac and me. And you want to come? come, you know, do an audition. So that's how they got the bass player. Wow. And then and then they brought they brought John Silvers back to play drums. And they actually they asked um, Danny Furious, you know, who was the drummer of the Avengers, if he would play drums. But he um, at that point, he was uh, he was a drug addict at that point, And he was just yeah. totally consumed with that. Um, he 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 got clean. Oh, and he's, wow. he's no longer. Yeah. And he wonderful. he lives over in uh, in Sweden and uh, oh, wow and yeah I think he's a chef in Sweden and he's totally clean yeah that is managed awesome to, which is great which is a really great thing and he's he's a great guy anyway but so that's how that's how Jimmy got into Silvertone okay and and it was it was actually a very natural thing because see a lot of at the same time that punk was happening and, and you think about the Clash. Because the Clash is London calling album, and then Sandinista, both of those albums, I mean, there's some rockabilly on there, yeah, there's all kinds of i mean it's you know there's reggae, there's rockabilly and and that that was the scene, the punk scene included people were listening to like fifties music they were and they were listening to reggae music, you know that wow. was part of the thing what they what they were down on was all these big bloated you know the Led Zeppelins and the Rolling Stones, and, right. you know, all of that stuff. They were, they didn't want to have anything to do with in theory anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
2: so they start playing in, in, in the early eighties. Jimmy is in the band for the first four albums, including Heartshaped world, which like we mentioned earlier has wicked game. The, you know, the song that just exploded Chris Isaac's career. And he last did one more album after that for San Francisco Days.
0: Well, he played on half of that album. Okay. He's only on half of it. Okay. And the last song uh, he played on was this song, Can't Do a Thing to Stop Me.
2: Oh, I love Uh, that song. This
0: can be lonely. Night's dreams come.
3: Exactly like you
0: And you can do a thing To stop me Which is an incredible song. And the thing about that song, I got to tell you, I saw them do that song at a club in Oakland called the Omni. This was before they had recorded it. Okay. And the live version of that song that I saw was unbelievable. And it was it was way better than the recorded version. Oh, and and I actually had a tape of it. And this is this is what's horrible. I was I love that song so much. And I'm listening to it in my car. Like all the time, mm-hmm. over and over again, and my tape deck got stolen out of my car, and the, ta- and the tape was in it. Oh. And you know, the person, the person who stole it, could care less about that. Yeah. You know? but that was the end of that. Oh. And uh, oh, wow. and sadly, I have not been able to find any bootlegs from back then. You know, with that song on it, even though I have a lot of Chris Isaac bootlegs, I don't have, I couldn't find any with that song. So, yeah, but that was the last song that Jimmy played on, according to uh, Eric Jacobson.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. And that's, that is my favorite song off that album. I love that song. Yeah. It's
0: a great song. Yeah. Yeah.
2: At this point, Jimmy, has he been into the hard drugs at this point? Because he, I mean, I know he had gotten into some pretty nasty stuff. Is that? What caused him to leave halfway through, I guess, San
0: Francisco days? Well, what happened was uh, Jimmy had actually, you know, when he was in high school, he started drinking and, uh, and of course, smoking weed, but also using speed on occasion. OK. Um, and some other drugs as well that that a nurse friend of, of his uh, would get from this hospital. Right. Some right. pretty, pretty hardcore stuff, actually. Really? Then when he was in San Francisco, at first he was using, well, you know, he was smoking weed and I think he was drinking at that point to some degree. But he was also, um, there was a lot of speed going around and okay. he was definitely participating in that. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't addicted to speed. He wasn't like a, but, but he was definitely using it. But he was very. The thing was, at that point, he was pretty anti heroin. And but what happened was, uh, in around 1985, and this is when he's in the Chris Isaac band. There was a lot of Persian brown heroin that came into San Francisco through these Iranian guys, and you you could smoke Persian brown heroin. Okay. You know, you, it's called ch- chasing the dragon, and basically, you would you have a piece of tinfoil – foil. And, and you put it on the tin foil. You have a a lighter, you know, underneath it, and you get you basically roll tin foil around a straw, and then get the straw out, and so then you use the straw to as as the smoke comes up off of the tinfoil, you know, from the lighter, you breathe in the smoke, and and that's how you get you get high. Okay. Uh, and so that that's what chasing the dragon is, and. So so Jimmy started doing that in, in late 84, 85. Wow. And he, he later told a friend that he felt like he'd come home the first time he's, he like used heroin. Oh, That wow. it was like such an overwhelming, positive experience for him that he basically never stopped after that. Um, oh, my gosh. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I kind of get into it in the book. I, I I definitely deal with the whole issue of addiction and why some people become addicted in the course of the book, because um, right. I thought that was really important. It's not just, you know, you use heroin a bunch of times and suddenly you're addicted. I mean, there's other factors that uh, are involved. But anyway, but the thing was, it wasn't like he went from zero to 100 It wasn't like that. I mean, he was and and actually people are able to I was surprised at this, but actually I I shouldn't have been because people can use use heroin for decades and some people can use it and not have to um, they can sort of maintain and they can maintain their jobs and they can they can manage to do all kinds of things for extended periods of time. And so Jimmy was kind of into it, but not. Not to where it was uh, getting in the way of anything, okay. as far as I know, at that particular point in time. Okay. But as time went on, he was using it more. There was a point where he started. He wasn't just. He wasn't smoking it. He was shooting it. Wow. And and he got to a point, and, and then what happened was the thing was okay. So he's going along, and I think he he had all kinds of expectations of what would happen if they had a hit. And I think these expectations were way out of line with the reality of something like that. Okay. And so when Wicked Game happened, I mean, the first he he said to me, like Wicked Game became a hit in England first before it was a hit here. Okay. And Jimmy said, said to me, you know, we have a hit, but I don't feel any different. And nobody knows we have a hit. I have to tell them that we have this hit. And <laughs> he said that, you know, and that it's oh. like that's a big that's a drag. You gotta tell someone that you're like famous in yes. England. I mean Trust and, me, I'm famous. And so um he he felt like he should have gotten more credit than he got for that song. Oh um, wow. okay. and and he and the thing is, I mean, Chris Isaac told me that Jimmy really deserved a lot of credit, that Jimmy was very responsible for that song becoming a hit. Yeah, You know, I mean, Isaac himself said that. And uh, so the thing is, when, um, before Wicked Game became a hit, sometime in 1990, he got a relationship going with a movie star or actress named Jennifer Rubin. Okay. Jennifer Rubin was, uh, she was... uh, God, she was in this the horror movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street, number three, okay, third one, and she had a brief part as Edie Sedgwick in the Oliver Stones, The Doors, and uh, okay. and she was in other movies and other TV things, and she had been a a model before that, so she was on the cover of of Mirabella magazine and and other magazines. So anyway, she got got introduced to Jimmy, and they just like, I mean, it, it, they clicked. I mean, that night they clicked, yeah, yeah. and so. So he has this actress girlfriend, but he's he's happy about that. They're playing, you know, to all these big crowds and he's happy that they have this hit that's on the radio and they do the Tonight Show and, you know, all this stuff. And he's got this great girlfriend and, and all this. Yeah. But he's not happy about his situation with Chris Isaac. He okay. feels like he should have more credit. He feels like he should be getting he should get have more money. And and he just doesn't feel it doesn't feel different to him in in some ways. And and so at a certain point, because of things that were going on in Jennifer Rubin's professional life and this stuff that was going on in Jimmy's life, Jennifer Rubin just couldn't deal with the scene anymore. And she broke up with Jimmy oh, okay and that hit him really hard. and. I think he, she says she doesn't think that he was doing heroin while they were together, but I think he probably was. And you know he was. There's ways to do it. There was times when they weren't together, and you know. But anyway, so his heroin use accelerated, and then after the breakup, it really accelerated, and to the point where he would show up for rehearsals and he couldn't play his parts.
2: Oh, wow.
0: And yeah, I mean, he was he was messed up. And at a certain point now, Eric Jacobson, you know, the producer, co-manager, he doesn't remember. He he says he can't remember if Jimmy just quit or if Chris fired him. Right. But some other people said that Jimmy was fired. Yeah. And and I believe I think that's what would have happened. That, that makes sense. And but the thing was, Jimmy also. He was sick and tired of working with Chris Isaac. I mean, he told me that. I mean, he, you know, and and he was not happy with some of the stuff that was getting recorded for the fourth album. And um, so anyway, so I think that it I mean, he was he was fired, but he might have quit if he hadn't been fired. Okay, Um, that could have it's possible that could have happened. I I don't know. Um, And so then he just went into a terrible drug thing. And was just really, really messed up on heroin. And he would hole up in his apartment for, for weeks, basically. Oh, like man. He'd be in there until he, until he ran out of money and ran out of drugs. And then he would leave and go to the bank, which was across the street, and get more money out. Because at that point, there was royalties that were coming in. So he had, he had money. Yeah, he wasn't paying taxes on the money, he, oh, which yeah. which came later. I mean, he owed it was a point where he owed over a hundred thousand dollars in back taxes.
2: Oh my gosh!
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of what happened, you know. And then he was basically using heroin for the rest of his life, but yeah. but he did, in, but in the but even with that going on, you know, in two thousand and seven, he recorded this amazing solo album. Yeah. you know, called El Dorado which is an amazing album, and he did it all in his dining room sitting at his computer. I mean... I mean, it's yeah, yeah.
2: In the interim between, oh, uh, like nineteen ninety three San Francisco days and two thousand seven, what was he doing? I mean, was was he well? Well, first
0: he was. I mean, he, he, you know he had this whole horrible drug thing going on, and then at a certain point he got into some tr- some kind of trouble. Like he, I think he owed people money in San Francisco, and he called up this girl he knew in L.A. and it was like, hey, I got to get out of here. Now. And she said, "Okay, fly down. You can stay at my place. You know, he got on a plane that night, flew down. She picked him up, brought him to her place. They didn't tell anyone that he was there. Oh, wow. And and he got clean. She said he got clean for a while while they were together. And and then they became they got into a relationship. And so she was his girlfriend for a while. But then he started using again. And so to the point where she had to tell him to leave. Oh, and so then man. so then in the earlier part of of 1998 he went and moved in with his brother and his brother was supposedly was was helping him clean up and then he met he met this woman named Winter and he moved in with her. She had this big loft. He moved in with her and eventually they they got married. In 2003 they got married. They had a kid, Waylon, at the end of 2003. Okay. But also in 1998 right out about by July of 98 he had fo- he formed an instrumental band called The Mysteries and they played around LA. Oh, um, cool. I mean I was I had uh, a reporter working for me who did a story on The Mysteries. Oh, wow. and it's online. You can find it if you if you search if you search MTV and the mysteries you'll find this story.
2: Oh, cool. And,
0: okay. and uh find two of them actually. But anyway, um, uh, so we did the mysteries then 2003, you know, I means, you know, married, has Whalen. Meanwhile, in 2002, he got a job doing it at a big Hollywood marketing company. That was basically, it's a company that, that does, um, <laughs> Well, see, he always had this computer thing going on.
2: OK. This
0: is another side of him. I mean, he was a consultant for Apple computers back in the late 80s. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And there's actually a, a video online. You can see where that's a whole thing about Apple computers and music. And Jimmy has a whole section in it. It's got like five artists and he's one of the artists oh, or six artists.
2: Man, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so, so he was like, you know, running this IT department for this place and had a, a responsible job. And wow. somehow he was managing to keep that going at the same time that he's using heroin, because he had this like, terrible thing, thing in 2000. Um, I think it was 2002, where he was, uh, he almost OD'd. And this friend wow. of his had to had to like, help him and get him to a place where they could this place where they gave him, gave him this stuff that that basically um, dealt with his withdrawal symptoms. And um, so it was like, yeah, he was somehow maintaining, but he worked this job through, through the recording of El Dorado. He oh, worked man. this job, and then he got fired in the beginning of 2008. And that was also a time when his girlfriend had broken up with him because of the heroin use. And so oh, I mean, yeah, it was just this man. roller coaster ride thing going on.
2: Oh, that's that's so heartbreaking. It's
0: I know. It's just terrible what how this played out.
2: Now El Dorado, you make it is just it, it's an incredible album. It's I love that <sighs> album so much, but I mean he's got a SoundCloud page and he's got yeah. some other tracks that, that like alright, so this song Priscilla by Heather Savall, uh Uh, let's see, Strawberry Jam, The Gasser, Ravioli, all these really cool tracks. Has there ever been an attempt to consolidate all these loose tracks?
0: As far as I know, no one has, has done that so far, you know? And the thing is, I mean, it would have to be a record company that was kind of doing it because they really just, just because they dug Jimmy, because, You know, El Dorado. They, they didn't sell a lot of copies of El Dorado, yeah. and they didn't think they were going to sell a lot of copies of it. I mean, Lakeshore is a is a movie company, and they they basically signed Jimmy because they thought his music would be they could use his music in films. And uh, there was a point where they were looking for for great artists that could make music that would work for their films. Oh, okay. And And so, so Jimmy fit that bill. And so they could do the CD, but they told him up front, you know, we're not going to promote this thing. We're not going to give you tour support or anything like that. You know, we we can't do that. You know, we're not that kind of company. And Jimmy was fine with that. Or who knows what Jimmy thought, because, you know, Jimmy, um, there there was a point where sort of, I think Jimmy was kind of disconnected a little bit from the reality of things. Um, And so maybe he just, you know, he thought, well, this is going to, this is going to revive my career. This is going to, I don't know, but you know, periodically it's what's really sad is, I mean, Jimmy should have been, he could have been an incredible session musician too. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. But, but for some reason it just didn't work out. There was one point where he did some stuff for Billy Idol, but that stuff never made it onto a record. Oh wow. And then, and then Lana Del Rey contacted him and he recorded She gave him this song of hers and he um, it was her, just her voice singing. And Jimmy recorded guitar against that. And it's so beautiful. I mean, you know, and I have three versions of it. And I mean, each one of them is really great. One of them is just even, you know, it goes to another another level. But but she she ended up taking the song in a completely different direction And, you know, and basically what Jimmy, you know, Jimmy had friends say Jimmy was really excited when that happened, and when he was working on that stuff. And then suddenly he's not getting any calls anymore, you know, and I mean, if she had used his stuff, that might have things might have turned out a lot different. I don't but you don't know. Yeah, because because Jimmy would also. When things were going really good, that can also be a time when a, when someone who's an addict really gets heavy into the stuff because they can't deal with the pressure. Yeah, and now they you have know?
2: they have the funds to fund their habit.
0: So. Yes, they have that, but yeah,
2: I don't. We did kind of gloss over the Chris Isaac years a bit for several reasons. I mean, it's a huge part, but it's also it's also a big part of the book, and I want people to read the book, and not just listen to the podcast and forget about the book, so... Um, <laughs> right, right. But, one of the things, uh, and I I reached out to several people that I know are h- big fans of, of Jimmy's, one of the questions they all wanted to know was if Jimmy and Chris stayed in touch at all after he left Silvertone, or was fired from Silvertone, and uh, if I'm assuming it was... Not the best split. So I was wondering if they ever kind of reconciled and, and were were on speaking terms afterwards.
0: Well, um, you know, he was he was out of the band in 1992, okay? And then he after he was out of the band, at a certain point, Chris was worried about Jimmy, and so this is what I was told Okay. that he was OK. I was told this by Michael Zagaris, who was um, a photographer who started photographing Silvertone back in 82 uh, oh, and cool. became kind of friends with both Jimmy and Chris and Zagaris. Um, he photographs um, the 49ers and the Giants. Oh, okay, and yeah. so he would he would bring them to games. And nice. yeah, yeah. So they you know they became friends. And um anyway, Zagaris and Chris went to Jimmy's apartment and you know they knocked on the door, there's no answer, they're calling, you know, you know, Zagaris looks through the mail slot and he said it was just looked like a disaster area in there. It was <sighs> horrible. And finally they just you know sort of hear Jimmy faintly saying just leave, you know, leave me alone, leave. I don't want to see any, you know, something to that yeah. effect. And and Chris says to Zagaris, well, isn't there something we can do? And Zagaris says, there's nothing. And Chris says, there's got to be something. And then Chris basically says, well, look, what are you going to do? First, you're going to, you know, you're going to get him to rehab. Then are you going to pay for him to be in, in rehab at one of these places for, yeah. for a month? And then after he gets out, then what he, you, what, you know, I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't, it's just, you can't do this. I mean, yeah. and so then Jimmy actually, he, over the next um, couple of years, I mean, he <laughs> went on to, went into, you know, methadone programs a couple of times, you know, but failed to, um, didn't succeed with those. Or if he did, then he you know, fell back and, uh, backslided. But then, um, when he went down to LA and after he got, when he was living with this woman and kind of cleaned, cleaned up, she told me that there was a day when the two of them went to Capitol records studio where Chris was doing some recording okay. and hung out with him a bit. And, oh, wow. uh, that things were, you know, Amy, you know, were friendly. Yeah. And then then as far what I understand is they then didn't see each other again until I think it's 1999. Yeah, yeah. it was uh, October of 99. Isaac was playing a free concert at the Staples Center and uh, which was basically 11 blocks from where Jimmy was living in this loft that his girlfriend had. Oh wow. And yeah. And this is in downtown L.A. Okay, is where the loft is. And so um, so after the sh- show, Chris Isaac and uh, Raleigh, the bass player, and some other friends showed up at the loft. And, you know, it was kind of there was kind of a party kind of going on. Oh, nice. And it was I mean, I was told it was kind of it was tense between Jimmy and Chris when he you know, when they first showed up. Then one of the uh, women who was with Chris started telling some jokes and you know doing some doing some kind of funny funny things and um, and that kind of broke the ice and also Jimmy was really glad to see Raleigh um, because they had been they I guess they had been pretty good friends but a lot of people were smoking in the loft and uh, and Chris hates cigarette smoke doesn't you know Chris Isaac does not want to be around cigarette smoke because uh, of his voice okay. and um yeah so that was kind of a problem and so after a while he he left i mean it wasn't like it was a great reunion or or anything it was okay uh you know it was just sort of a it was you know it was just sort of it's okay, okay. but it wasn't like any it wasn't like they were OK, now we're going to work together again or, right. or anything. Yeah. And, and the thing was, his girlfriend was really encouraging him to work with Chris again and to see with, see them. She said, look, they, they want to hang out with you. you know, why yeah. don't you call them? But he just didn't want to, He didn't want to do it. And then at a certain point, the guy who lived right next door to them in the loft was this guy, Bill Sankey. He's a bass player, but he's also a producer. And he had a recording studio in the loft next door. Okay. And he became really close with Jimmy. They were like best friends for a while. And they yeah, they hung out every day. And so at one point, he, he said to, to Jimmy, you know, he said, look, man, it's like Chris Isaac just keeps on going and going, you know. And these guys, you know, like, you know, the guys in his band, yeah, they're not stars. They're not getting the big credit and everything, but they're, you know, touring the world and they're, they're playing in the band and they're yeah. playing for people and, and they're making money. And yeah, it's exactly. not, it's not like the worst thing in the world, but he just didn't want to hear it. And oh, basically, man. and so Bill, Bill just said, I never brought it up again. Cause it was really clear that that, that was just, he didn't want to talk about it and he wasn't going to do it. Um, Now, years later, in 2016, Jimmy briefly moved back up to the Bay Area, moved in with a with a girlfriend up there. And at that point, he was invited to. Come, because Chris Isaac and the band were going to play at the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. That's a okay. yearly, free, huge concert in Golden Gate Park. Oh, that cool. it's a major thing, and it's not just bluegrass. I mean, that's why it's hardly strictly bluegrass, because <laughs> I mean, every you know everyone plays there from you know Jorma Kaukonen of the Jefferson Airplane and that band Hot Tuna, yeah, you know to yeah, just just all kinds of of. Big stars, Emmylou Harris and all oh, kinds awesome. of people play, play the thing. And uh, so anyway, Isaac was going to play that year, and they asked him, if, Jimmy, if he would come and sit in, but it didn't happen. He didn't, he didn't end up doing it. Uh, 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 and I have no – Raleigh told me about that. I have no idea. Um, he doesn't know why Jimmy didn't do it. It just didn't happen. So, yeah. I mean, so many
2: missed opportunities.
0: Yeah, I mean, and Chris Isaacs said at one point that he would like to work with Jimmy again, but yeah, like I say, it it never happened. Uh,
2: it's so heartbreaking because he, I mean, he ended up homeless.
0: Yeah, and, and the thing was, he he didn't have to be homeless. I mean, he had money, but he was so messed up that, yeah, it was just, I mean, as I understand stand it, he didn't, he didn't have to be, I mean— right.
2: At What point? I mean, it it sounds like he just at the end almost gave up the on music. Was there a point where he just kind of stopped recording and turned his back, or on playing guitar when were the drugs too much at that point?
0: Well, he didn't really stop. I mean, he you know after his uh, his you know solo album he he kept working on stuff and and he uh, you know and there's all that stuff that's up you know that you you saw up on uh, you know online
2: yeah on the sound at, on the soundcloud page soundcloud yeah, page yeah, yeah
0: yeah it's yeah and he um he got into this thing where he was what he told several people was he was making these really short instrumental pieces and they weren't just like the stuff he did on El Dorado, they were different, and and so I think there's a couple, there's there's a one or two really short things that are on SoundCloud. Yeah. Maybe that's along the line of what he was was doing, but you know he, so he he kept working, and when he was interviewed um, by this guy who who did his the the last interview with him, and that happened in um, like July of 2018. And while I mean, he had his his little studio set up that was in a bedroom of the house where he was he was living. Yeah. And half the room, you know, they're like his he, they, he had a single bed over on one side of the room. And he had his his Mac and, and his, you know, keyboards and, and, you know, synthesizers and all that stuff. Um, and all during the interview, he had this uh, guitar that he was he was trying to fix uh, there was something wrong with the pickup and he was he was trying to like reattach the pickup and oh, but he but but he was messed up and so he never was able to do that during this 3 hour interview but the point is that he he was still doing stuff or trying to do stuff you know that was 6 months before he died okay now now obviously at a certain point when they left the house you know, they were basically there was an eviction notice and they hung around for a while, but then they you know, they, they left the house. And at that point for first he was like sleeping in his car. And so I, I'm not sure what happened with the stuff that was in the house, you know, yeah. the the computer and and now maybe that got he maybe he put that in storage or or something. Yeah. Because most of his stuff, most of his stuff went to Arizona, where his sisters um, and other family members live back in, in 2000, in late 2016. He got he had brought all this stuff, all the stuff up to the Bay Area. And then his girl, girlfriend at a certain point, because of the drugs, said, you got to go. Wow. You got got you know, you're, you're gone, man. Yeah. And uh, so at that point, all that stuff went up to Arizona, okay. And then, um, so when he went back to L.A., he brought a computer and and you know a, a guitar or two and but not but you know stuff that could fit in in a car, I guess. And so he didn't have a lot in L.A. Okay, you know, at okay. the point when he he was homeless.
2: Oh, it's man, it's it's, yeah. it's just such. It's a fascinating and but heartbreaking. Oh, oh it's story. tragic.
0: It's it, it's tragic, and I mean, you know, I I've lived with it for for three years, every day for, for more than three years, actually. At this point, for three and a half years, yeah. And so you you become a little bit kind of used to it or something. I, I guess is the only way I can can put it, but but not really, right. But it's different than when I first when I first heard about it, I just about fell over. I was like, oh my God, you know, and and it's and it's just terrible. It's absolutely terrible what happened, how his life ended. It's it's just a horrible thing, you know. And um, but I've tried in this book, I've really tried to I really tried to emphasize both or explain why Jimmy was important. And what was special about his playing and the unique contributions he made? And I, because I had interviewed my Jimmy myself for you know over four hours when he was in his prime, you know, when when he wasn't messed up. Right. And then I also had this final three-hour interview that that he did at the end of his life. So I had seven hours of Jimmy talking, and then I also had over ten hours. Of Chris Isaac talking. And then I interviewed, I interviewed more than 60 people over the, the three years. And a lot of those were like very extensive interviews. There were some people like, like Eric Jacobson, for example, that I went back to throughout the whole three years. I oh, mean, as new man. questions would come up, I would go back to to Eric and, and ask him about this or about, about that. And so, um, yeah, so, so this was very deeply reported. And also Jimmy is in the book in a big way himself, because Jimmy himself talks throughout the book. And he talks he talks a lot about how many of the songs on the first album, like how they were recorded or how he came up with his guitar parts. And so, I mean, for a guitar player, I think that would be particularly interesting. Oh, for sure. Um, I was fascinated by all of that. And, um, you know, and I'm not like, you know, I'm not a, a musician. I mean, I mess around a little bit, but I'm not, a not a musician, but I just felt, um, uh, it was really important to get all that in the book and to just show Jimmy both at his best and then kind of what happened, yeah. you know, and it's also, um, I hope, I would hope that maybe some musicians, you know, who would read this, some young musicians, Maybe they wouldn't try, you know, go down the drug, you know, thing. Yeah. By seeing what happened to Jimmy. Yeah. Um, A supremely
2: talented guitarist who just lost it all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he should have, God, there's, he should have made so much more music. There should be so many more albums. Yeah. With Jimmy playing on them than there are. And it's a really sad thing that that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: He could take a song like um, Sleepwalk and make a song that everybody knows sound like a Jimmy Willis song.
0: yeah that's really 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 beautiful and then also the uh, the the carpenter song which wasn't actually written by the carpenters but they made it famous superstar yes is i mean his his version of that is just beautiful really incredibly is. beautiful and um he, you know he's he just had he had a tone and he had a feel yes i mean that was so special and it's and the thing is it, it wasn't like you know I mean and, and Jimmy, you know, he wasn't a flashy player at
2: all. No. <laughs> he was
0: he was the opposite of that. But but his playing, it was so just so beautiful. And or and, I mean something and then there were times when it, it was you know on the on certain on a bunch of the Chris Isaac songs where it's it's very sort of dark or it's very very powerful. Very um You know, like on um, You Owe Me Some Kind of Love, which is a song off of the second Chris Isaac album. Yeah. I mean, his guitar just makes that song. Yeah. it's it's so incredible. There's a reason um, David
2: Lynch loved these guys. <laughs> <you know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, so I, I so I really tried to get that that get that into the book and to talk, you know, just to try to convey that you know there was just this special kind of the, a special thing that he had yeah. that it was just it was there. You know, it it's not like you could say you could go well that's it or that's it right it it was a sort of ephemeral thing but that just made his playing so special
2: there's just yeah like they said there's just a, a feel an aura about the way he played music the, the way he played that guitar and you can't teach it it's just something that you got
0: <laughs> yeah well i mean it, he like it's like he took all this stuff that he'd listened to but he turned it into something unique. Yeah. You know, that, sure. that wasn't just like, it wasn't like he was copying what he heard. It was like he took it and then he put his own spin on it.
2: Yeah, like, like the the song Strawberry Jam, it, it's definitely to me, but it's got like a, a stonesy feel to it. that track and the out al- the album I'm so used to talking to people about albums. The <laughs> the <laughs> when is the book coming out? And I know that we were discussing that uh some of the proceeds are going to help out Jimmy's son Waylon.
0: Yeah you know when Jimmy died um uh, his son was was 15 years old wow you know just I think he was just turning 16 that year is that anyway anyway um and so one of his relatives became his guardian, and he left Los Angeles and, and went to live with them in Arizona. Okay. And um, I mean, he he turned eighteen this past um, December, but he's still. I mean, as far as I know, he's still been living with the relative and preparing to go to college. And okay. but he's 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 a, a very good student. And I felt when I began um, working on this book right from the start. I decided that I wanted to give a portion of my royalties to Waylon. I just, I just felt like I had to do that. You know, it was just, I just not, I couldn't, couldn't do this otherwise. Yeah. And um, so I'm giving him 25% of whatever I get. And it's not like I'm not deducting expenses or anything like that. Basically, if I earn a dollar, he gets 25 cents of every single dollar that, that, is you know going to be paid to me by the book company. That's so wonderful. Um,
2: that is so generous.
0: And so, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just uh, whatever. I, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And um, you know, I, and it's not like I mean, I've I've made that public because I want people to know that some of their money is going to go to Whalen. And the thing is, yeah. if um, the best place to buy the book. Is from the directly from the book company's website, and the company is called Hozak Records and Books. And okay. this company, it's it's started out as like a as like a punk record label in Chicago, and so they started putting out records. They they fifteen years ago they started putting cool records out. Okay, and and um, the guy who founded it. Loves music. He's he's as obsessive about music as I am, and as I'm sure you are. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, yeah. I mean, that's his thing is is music, and and then he started the book division, you know, some years ago, and um, and so this is a really cool indie operation. That this is there is nothing corporate about this book company, and I mean, my contract is less than one page. Oh wow. <laughs> now and and it's not and not microscopic type. Right. I mean, okay, and I'll tell you something. With um, most book companies, it's like a 15-page contract. And it is microscopic yes. type. <laughs> I mean, and it gets into, I mean, it's unbelievable what like book contracts are like, oh, but, God. but this one is as simple as it could be. And it was, it was cool that that was the deal. This, this guy is just a great guy who, oh, awesome. who started this company, um, you know, you know, so anyway, he, and he's going to give a small percentage of, of what he gets to Waylon as well. Oh, so, um, wonderful. And so when when somebody buys the the thing is when you buy the book directly from the book company the book company does not have to give half of the money to a bookstore or probably more than half the money to Amazon right yeah See and so therefore my percentage is bigger Wayland's percentage is bigger yeah What the guy who has this indie company who wants to put out more cool books and records he gets, you know, so it's really, it's, it's a really good thing all the way around and you get the the book for what it's supposed to sell for, you know? Um, so, so anyway, I've, you know, we're really encouraging people to, to buy the book from the website. And in fact, I think we're going to, I think he's going to wait a bit before you can get the book elsewhere. So it's like to encourage people to get it from the website, you know? And I thought that was a cool idea. I, I liked it. He has a really different approach to, um, to everything than, oh, than awesome. most, most people. And he's been around 15 years, so it's working.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, all right, so what, what's the website and how can people follow you on social media and keep track of what you're doing and, uh, and, and help Waylon?
0: Okay, well, the website is hozack.com h o z a c records dot com. Okay, and all you got to do is put put hozac records in, and it'll come up. You know, hopefully you can uh, you can put a link somewhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if they just Google hozac records, go to the website. They'll you know right now the book is really prominently displayed there, so um, they can get Great. a preview of the book. I mean, the book is four hundred and fourteen pages. There are 150 over 150 images which include photographs and fly reproduced flyers there's some of the best photographers from san francisco and in fact some of the best photographers in the country have contributed photographs to this book oh, and that includes um there's a couple of photographs from um bruce connor the avant-garde artist oh cool. there's there's the, the late bruce connor yeah there's um There's great photographs from Ruby Ray, who's a fantastic photographer who was there in the heyday of San Francisco punk and who's had a couple of books of her photos out. She was just and is an incredible photographer. Michael Zagaras, who I spoke to uh, to you about earlier. Mm -hmm. He had had an amazing, huge coffee table book of his his rock photos that came out. He contributed a bunch of photographs. Chester Simpson, Hugh Brown. Sue Brisk, yes, um, some great photos by Sue Brisk. Yeah, I mean, there's just um, a lot of great stuff. I hope I have. Oh, there's a photograph of Jimmy that Chris Stein, you know, from Blondie took. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have some photographs because I'm I'm also a photographer and I shot the Avengers at the Mabue Gardens in '78 and, awesome. uh, you know. Ch- I have a, a great photo of Jimmy that I took at the Santa Cruz beach when we went there one day. And, um, and uh, then there's other stuff, you know, in there. Some also some photos of, of other like a photo I took of the punk band Crime and a photo I took of Iggy Pop because J- Jimmy was a huge Iggy Pop fan. Yes, I saw so that. One,
2: yeah. You
0: know, Patty, a photo I took of Patty Smith. He was a huge. In fact, the Patty Smith group was what um, made him feel like he could actually do it. Because oh, he wow. he heard them play and he thought he loved it and he thought and you know what I could do that I can't do what Jeff Beck does right. but I could do what what you know what they're doing so the key um, is slow yeah so yeah I mean people can you know that's how they can get to the website if they want to keep up with me um, I have a blog called Days of the Crazy Wild and if you blog Days of the Crazy Wild. You know, it'll it'll pop up oh, and cool. um and I'm I'm you know, whenever something happens relating to the Willsey book or another book I have coming out at the end of the year, I I put the information up there. And okay. I also have a Days of the Crazy Wild Facebook page, but I also have a Michael Goldberg Facebook page. Okay. And uh, you know, and, and whatever's going on I I put on put on there if there's anything new to report or oh wonderful. <laughs> whatever. So
2: this is as close as I could ever get to to getting Jimmy on the podcast. So, man, thank you so much. I, I really have enjoyed reading the book, and, and like you mentioned, there's so many amazing images images of you know of him as a kid. It's just a really amazing collection.
0: I've, was, it's real, yeah. There's one. It's really funny. He was when he was in high school, he played on the football team. Yeah. For one year he was like the shortest player on the team so the, in his high school yearbook there was a picture there's like the guy who was the tallest player and there's jimmy yeah. this guy is almost twice as tall as jimmy it's mean, really really funny picture i remember that one.
2: It made me laugh so much <laughs> well thank you so much for for all the time cool cool
1: Way to the OR. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of RV surgery. <laughs> Wait, are you promoting me? Congrats, Martinez. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of nursing. So you're just promoting everyone now? Yeah, kind of looks that way, doesn't it? When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates covered subject to policy terms.
3: With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band.
1: Next up for lead guitar... (laughs)